Okay, and good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening broadcast. Today we're looking at... Uh, yes, last week we looked at the lesser discourse on the simile of the elephant's footprint. Today we're looking at the greater discourse on the simile of the elephant's footprint. Greater, lesser just means size, I think. The lesser one is not any lesser, it's just shorter, more simple. The sutta is quite uh, involved for the Majjhima Nikaya. It's one of, well, there's many of them that are involved, but this is, there's a lot in here, relatively speaking. But it's about... Uh, well, it doesn't have much to do with an elephant. It's just the first part that does, and this is uh, an in, an interesting, particularly because it's one of the one of several suttas discourses that is attributed not to the Buddha, but to Sariputta, the Buddha's chief disciple. So we looked at the. Rata Vinita Sutta, the relay chariots, and that was mainly uh, based on on the speech of Sariputta along with Punamantani Buddha. But uh, this one is well, there's several that are included, and the inclusion of the suttas by Sariputta is an indication of how highly he was revered. But you find a tendency. In these suttas, to be very similar, or uh, at least halfway similar to the Abhidhamma, and so you can get the idea of how we can uh, believe the claim that Sariputta was the one who sort of put together the Abhidhamma based on as it was taught to him by the Buddha. Sariputta and his followers seem to have been. Uh, his students, Sariputta and his students seem to have been very much inclined towards the um, enumeration, the expansion and categorization of dhammas. And you'll, you'll probably see that a little bit. I'm going to try to condense it, obviously. The, there's a lot in here. I'll just try to give the gist of it, make it easy to, a little easier to understand for a general audience, hopefully, and keep it applicable to our meditation practice. So the the first uh, teaching here is related to the elephant's footprint. Sariputta says, friends, ahuso, just as the footprint of any living being that walks can be placed within an elephant's footprint right there's no no being that I know of that has a bigger footprint than the elephant certainly in India there was nothing bigger the elephant's footprint is declared the chief of them because of its great size in the same way all wholesome states 
can be included in, in what? In the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are considered to be the elephant's footprint of wholesome states. They're the, the biggest. So that in and of itself is a worthwhile teaching. It's always important to remember how important and how highly revered and, and the high place that the Four Noble Truths have in the Buddha's teaching. There's nothing higher than them. They are the they are the wheel of Dhamma. The Four Noble Truths, along with the practices and realizations related to the Four Noble Truths, are the wheel of Dhamma. Many times when the Buddha was asked things that uh, were off track, he would say, look, what I teach, what I teach is the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of, or the origin of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering, the noble truth. Use the word noble, Arya. Or victors, a uh, uh, victorious person's truth. The truth of someone who has achieved the goal, who has done something worthwhile. Done something worthwhile. It's a, it sounds sounds more common than it actually is. I think so much of what we take to be worthwhile is really just a perpetuation of our state in samsara. And so, what he's going to show here in this sutta basically is that all the dhammas can be fit into the Four Noble Truths in some way. I guess you could, s yeah, pretty much all. It doesn't really matter if you, there's some, you have to sort of fudge it a little bit. The, mo the important point is that they're all subsumed by this one. But he's going to break it down and show how Within the Four Noble Truths there's a lot of Dhamma It sounds actually quite simple You read about the Four Noble Truths You say, well, but there's all this other stuff right? It's not just the Four Noble Truths um, It's going to show that All the important stuff is contained in, in here So he says, take the First Noble Truth What's the First Noble Truth? Well, there's birth is suffering Old age is suffering Death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. The point of the truth of suffering is that it exists. Um, it's, it's the process by which the meditator comes to see that the things that we cling to are not worth clinging to. You know, it's not an intellectual thing where you intellectually say, yeah, 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 it's, um, there's a lot of suffering in life. No, it's, it's the process by which one comes to let go. How do you let go of something? You let go of something when it becomes experientially, like vividly, undeniably clear to you that that thing that you're clinging to is not worth clinging to. It's something that we don't have. As long as you're clinging to something, it means you don't have the understanding that that thing is not worth clinging to. And that's it. That in, that in a nutshell 
is the framework of the Buddhist teaching and why we undertake insight meditation based on mindfulness. We're not trying to do anything weird or particular or specific to any religion or religious practice. As a little side note, I had someone sign up for the online course and then I told them they had to keep the five precepts and they said they were surprised and they said, oh, I thought I thought uh, anyone could do this course. Well, yeah, they can, but he, thought, he said, uh, I, I thought people, you, you didn't have to believe in anything. I said, well, you know, it's not about belief. It's about taking it seriously. If you don't take it seriously, and then I think I probably said something I, I shouldn't have. I said, it's not worth my while. Uh, probably not the best way to put it. And then I said, but it's not worth your while either. It's not worth any of our whiles. And, and he hung up on me. I don't know. It was, it was quite a bizarre thing. But uh, it made me think about, you know, I mean, his, the feeling I think was that they didn't realize that it was religious and that I was requiring them to in some way become Buddhist. Oh, they said something about I didn't realize you had to be Buddhist. I thought you didn't have to be Buddhist. I said, well, well, Buddhist is someone who practices meditation. And you know, that, that if you're going to practice meditation, you have to keep the five precepts. Um, but the point here is that this is the Buddhist religion, you know. It's, it's not about labels. You don't have to say, hey, I'm a Buddhist. But this is all it is. Buddhism is a religion unlike any other religion. Not that there are, there are other things you might call religions that are similarly atheistic, for example. Um, but Buddhism is you know, unique in so many ways shouldn't ever be compared it's so hard to do multi-faith with Buddhism because we're not at all like all these other things that are called religions the Four Noble Truths it's nothing like any other religion not in, not, not, ex not in its focus anyway the, the point isn't to compare with other religions it's just to say that uh, this is Buddhism. And Buddhism is just a simple practice, but with very, very, very far-reaching consequences. And that's something I think that's brought out quite well in this discourse. So the, that's the first teaching. The Four Noble Truths are the the uh, elephant's footprint. They're the biggest. Then he gets into, as I said, what is the first noble truth? And he, he zeroes in on what's important. The, what the Buddha said was important about the truth of suffering is that the five aggregates are suffering. The five things that are related to clinging. Because that's of course the cause of clinging. Turns out that you don't really suffer, not mentally anyway, unless you cling to something. So suffering, the nature of suffering is all tied up with clinging. If you, if you give up clinging, there will still be suffering in the sense of pain and old age and sickness. But there won't be any mental suffering and moreover there won't eventually be any old age uh, pain etc etc uh, because the clinging that caused you to be reborn is gone you won't be reborn again either 
So it's on two levels in that way. But all tied up with clinging. Both, both ways you look at it. Whether it's about living free from clinging or whether it's not being born again because you have no clinging. It's all tied up with clinging. And so he says, in brief, as the Buddha said, suffering, the truth of suffering is just the five aggregates. So what are these five aggregates related to clinging? So you've got material form, you've got feelings, happy, pain, pleasant, pain, neutral feelings. You've got perception, and perception's probably not the right translation, although it's a difficult one. Yeah, maybe it is. But sanya, I think, in this context is memory. Relates to recognition, when you recognize something. The formations aggregate, that means anything, any mental formation, which means once you perceive something, once you're conscious of something, and then you recognize it, oh yes, that's a dog. The formation is what you then think about it. And well, is it a big dog, small dog, cute dog, ugly dog, scary dog, smelly dog, it's on. Well, smelly would be something else. That would be a smell. And then you like the smell, you don't like the smell. All these formations. Some are neutral, but many are are problematic. And some are, are positive, are you know, related to growth and spiritual development and goodness and happiness. Uh, and consciousness is the fifth. But these five, so these five are all tied up with clinging. There is a potential to cling to these five. Uh, I mean, more importantly, this makes up the nature of of our existence as a being. And so, people often think of this being as being made up of five things, but it's not really like that, as we'll see. These five things are actually um, a product of each experience. Every experience is going to. Um, be involved with these five is going to contain these five so he's already gone he said okay he's shown that within one there's within the first noble truth there's five dhammas and then so he takes the first of the five the material the, the physical and he, he says well what's the physical and he says the physical is just the four elements and here we have another very important teaching that is sort of potentially lost to a modern audience. I can't stress enough how important the five, four elements are and understanding of them. They're not hard to understand, but I think what's hard to understand is their primacy over our ordinary way of looking at, at reality. We've gone so far from the very simple nature of experiential matter the physical according to experience as we experience it that's what's real you know, like for those of you who are new to meditation let's try try this try to see it from the perspective I'm talking about there's hardness and softness that's the earth element there is tension and flaccidity just tension and lack of tension basically and that's the air element 
there's heat and there's cold and that's the fire element uh, these are just names for them really and then there's cohesion which is the water element these four make up the physical nature but physical to us as humans has become so much more physical is this room physical is this body physical is even cells and molecules and particles and lower and you know smaller and smaller and quantum fields and this and that Higgs Higgs boss Higgs things stuff all sorts of stuff and it, it's just the paradigm has shifted so far from the experience that now we think you know when we think of matter we think of subatomic particles we think of rooms and people and places and things so it's a very important it's not what he's trying to teach here because in th these monks were I would say still fairly cog uh, cognizant of experiential matter matter from an experiential point of view the physical from the point of view of experience but we've gone so far from it mostly I think we, we're unfamiliar with experiential rupa so you have to understand what we're talking about here when we talk about matter we're talking about how you experience matter and understand that this is much 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 more important spiritually than all the crap that we talk about uh, because that gets into what he actually is trying to teach and he's making a very important point here which I want to stress as well upcoming up next so he says these are the four elements and he says and what is the earth element well the earth element is anything that's hard solid so you've got you know your nails are hard so there's a hardness there and your bones are hard and your teeth are hard your hair is kind of hard you know it's got a brittle sort of nature to it and so on and so on and gives some parts of your body that are all uh, earth earthy and he says, but internally and externally, it's all just the earth element. That's okay, so that's fine. And he says, he gives the standard Buddhist teaching that all of this should be seen. This should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom, thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees it thus with proper wisdom one becomes disenchanted with the earth element and makes the mind dispassionate towards the earth element it's a very deep statement very hard to sort of uh, you know internalize and understand it until you've done a fair amount of meditation and you can understand uh, this concept of this not being me not being mine and why that's important and what that means and how that relates to to us what does this statement mean to us? What it means is that we cling to these things, you know? We cling to the body. This body is my body, you know? Oh, look at all this hair. Maybe it's nice hair. Maybe it's ugly hair. Maybe I'm going bald and losing my hair. 
right? We cling to my teeth. My teeth are crooked. They're turning yellow. I better go whiten them. How many countless ways that we cling to the, 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 the earth element. We cling to concepts generally that are based on the earth element. And so all of this is to bring us back to the reality of it. That what we're talking about when we say teeth and bones, and, you know, the body, when we talk about our possessions, what we're talking about is experiences of the earth element, the air, the fire, the water element. So he's, you see how deeply he's gone in the Four Noble Truths. He's now come to... Um, He's talking about one specific Dhamma right now, the earth element. And and really that's enough because it becomes a model for all the rest of the element, the rest of the Dhammas. But this is how we practice. We practice to see things as they are. To break free from this ridiculous attachment to them. That's I mean that's a profound point in and of itself and a very important one. And the fact that through seeing that, the craving disappears. One becomes disenchanted, dispassionate. Whereas one was passionate towards it before, thinking this is oh this is great, or or, or worried about it, or afraid that we're going to lose, afraid that our body's going to get sick, or self-conscious about our looks or our uh, our health and so on. All of that we become dispassionate when we say, this isn't mine. So that's important. But then he's, he kind of takes it easy on his audience, which is a common uh, a common method you know, for the purpose of explaining it. You know, because it's hard to swallow that, that very terse statement. Is it really not, you know, what does it mean this is not me? I mean, it's me, it's mine. And, how do you explain that to me? And then he gives so he gives something that I think is this is what I was saying, I think is a very profound or important statement. He says there comes a time when the water element is disturbed, and then the external earth element vanishes. So he's giving I don't really know what that means. Uh, I mean it it may be a little bit imprecise because you know they didn't have all this precise technical explanations of how um, how atoms and subatomic particles work that we're so fond of talking about but basically what he's saying that eventually in the universe in the universe there comes to be no earth element there's no hardness there's no hardness to be felt this whole earth that we're that we're living on is obliterated. Eventually, there comes a time in certain in certain iterations of the universe. So the universe is born and dies, and it's cyclical, and it's born and it dies in different ways. So in certain iterations, I guess in all iterations, there's a it's obliterated. The earth element is gone. And he says, when even this earth, all this earth, great as it is, is seen to be impermanent, subject to dis destruction, 
What of this body? What of this body that is clung to and by craving and lasts but a short while? There can be no considering that as I or mine or I am. And I think this is profound in a way that isn't, isn't perhaps immediately obvious. So we were talking about we were talking about smiling last night on in our study group. How arahants smile, and they smile at the oddest things. They smile at things that you might think actually make them kind of insensitive, insensitive to the suffering of others. So when Moggallana saw these ghosts, these spirits, uh, with his with his special vision. He saw spirits that were undergoing great torture, and he smiled. And you think, what the heck is what the heck is he smiling for? That's awful. That's so so terrible. That these you know mostly we feel so sad. And so the point and how that relates to this sutta is that. Our understanding of our, our our perception of reality is somewhat somewhat um, infantile, puerile. Somewhat, it's very, it's incredibly, from the point of view of someone who has seen beyond it. Our obsession with the physical body. Right, to put it simply, is on so many levels silly. And so what he's doing is bringing this back into context, a context that is so vast and profound. It's like that uh, Carl Sagan talk. If anybody knows Carl Sagan, he's he it's called the pale blue dot, and he said. I don't remember exactly, but I think it's like the last picture that was transmitted by some space probe of Earth. And it showed Earth as just a pale blue dot. And it was kind of a religious moment in the sense that it was it moved people. It was a very serious. I like using the word religious and religion, but I, what I mean by it is something that we take seriously something that moves us that's all I mean by it when I talk about Buddhist religion I mean something that we take seriously something that we we hold on to and that's we hold on to this that's why people call us Buddhists and uh, what it meant was how how uh, how inconsequential how meaningless our existence here on earth is you know you think how how drastic how how terrible when you look when you read the news right and you read about what's going on it just seems so important all these important things that are going on and you think about all the laws that we've built and all these structures that were the economic structures, the infrastructures, how seriously we take 
humanity is kind of like a religion. We take it so seriously. Now, much of it is useful, but much of it is not. And most of it is just related with clinging. Most of the laws and the norms and the government governance that we have is just ways of complex ways of allowing us to get what we want allowing as many of us as possible to get what we want or prohibiting in when it's unfair you know corruption corruption which we see everywhere you know, the amount of corruption in government and so on all based on getting what we want trying to uh, get what we want at the expense of other people in competition with other people and so on and so on and I can uh, you know totally empathize with an arahant who smiles at all of this smiles at the worst of it smiles at it's kind of like the way it's exactly like the way an, a parent smiles at a child who believes in Santa Claus. And uh, the way parents smile at their kids when, when their teenage child falls in love and has their heart broken and wants to kill themselves. Well, maybe not that far, but who has their heart broken is just totally completely to their core devastated and the parent smiles the parent smiles because it's 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 immature I mean, it's immature in the sense that they it's it's not as drastic as the teenager makes it seem you know having been there and having gained some perspective they smile right that's how an arahant looks at this because they've seen so far beyond They've come to realize that the reality, reality is made up of stuff. It's all just stuff. And all these particulars and specifics of problems and concerns that we have, relationships that we have, it's all so artificial, unnecessary, unproductive, unpleasant. And so when they see people suffering greatly, I mean, they're not moved to tears by it. You see people being shot and killed, you see people being tortured and we we, we it's misleading to think that you know, Buddhism talks a lot about compassion. It's misleading to think that it upset it's meant to upset you. That the right answer is to be upset by it It's the totally wrong answer It's a sign of getting caught up in the, the play Getting caught up in the drama the, the, what it not, the soap opera basically You know, the fiction The fiction of death, of birth and death The fiction of, of self There's no reason to be upset at suffering that's the whole problem, right? And that's really the profundity here is that it's it's inconsequential. Suffering is really 
not worth getting upset about. That's really it. So that's why the Buddha put the first noble truth as suffering and, and I, I, I repeat this again and again, said the, the first noble truth, what are you supposed to do about it? Is not escape it. That's not the answer. The answer people always give, okay, the first noble truth is suffering, what are you supposed to do about suffering? Well, escape suffering, right? That's what Buddhists say. No. No, that's not what the Buddha said. The Buddha said, what you're supposed to do about the first noble truth is fully understand it. Become so familiar with suffering that you know everything there is to know about it. That's what the Buddha taught about the first noble truth. Not run away from it. Understand it. So, so much of Buddhism is describing suffering, describing how suffering comes to be, describing the process of creating suffering, because that's what we want to learn. We want to learn about it. We want to understand it. Once you understand it, you free yourself from it. You free yourself from the drama. You say, oh boy, what was I thinking that I got so caught up in this, so worked up by this? All these things that I cling to They're inconsequential This earth And, and it's, it's, it's uplifting I mean, A lot of that might sound a little depressing To an ordinary viewer But it's uplifting Because it, 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 it makes us not uh, Inconsequential We're not just a pale blue dot We're not just this life You know our general understanding of reality is is, is kind of p pathetic, and I don't want to be sound judgmental, but I don't know what the right word is. Something like really, really um, belittles our place in the universe, in a sense, because there's so much beyond this. We are a part of the process of creation and destruction, the creation and destruction of the universe. We don't just disappear after this body dies. No, there's so much more. It's an important part of the Buddha's teaching. It's an important part of Buddhism. If you really want to live as a, have experience the world as a Buddhist, to rise above this artificial shell that we're caught up in. You know, he says, skip down a little bit, he says, uh, I have to skip too far maybe But he says uh, these, these five aggregates When they come together That's what we call material form They just come together And we call them material form Meaning this body doesn't mean anything This body is not me you know, This human life It's more like a prison than anything It's kind of like a glove That we've stuck our hand into The hand being the mind And now we're stuck it's like we stuck our hand in and we grabbed on and like that monkey in the story that grabs onto the banana and can't get out. You never know this story? Like the hunter puts a a banana inside a coconut and the monkey sticks its hand in the coconut, grabs the banana, and won't let go. 
And because it won't let go of the banana, it can't get its hand out. And even when the hunter comes, the monkey won't take its the monkey won't let go of the banana. It's a curious awful, awful story really, but uh, proves a point. It relate it's it's relatable to our experience as human beings. He says some other things. Uh, I've kind of talked for a while now, so I'm just going to skip them. But I do recommend reading this one, as with all of them. Really, you should read the entirety of the Majjhima Nikaya if you want to be a card-carrying Buddhist. It's worth it. 152 suttas. We're only going through... I'll probably go through most of them. We'll see. And so he talks about the water element in the same way, the fire element in the same way, the air element in the same way. And then he switches to talk about... Right, and then he gives the simile. He says, just as when you take some space and you enclose it by sticks or wood or, or uh, clay, whatever, it be it's called a house. So in the same way, when a space is enclosed by bones and sinews, flesh and skin, and it comes to be termed rupa, the body. That's it. It's not The body isn't something special. This body is just stardust. We are stardust. You ever heard that? We are stardust. We're not just stardust. We're, we're mind dust as well We have mental The mental is probably more accurate Because the physical changes and goes But The mind is a continuous stream That Stays with us In the sense of being a Continuous constant stream of consciousness That Drops off when you sleep And picks up again when you wake up and continues on and on from life to life. Then he gets into some technical aspects uh, of the senses, right? You can't really talk about the five aggregates without talking about the senses. They go together. So the way it goes is this. You've got uh, the six senses, six. And each one of the six senses has five aggregates. Which means when you see, uh, there's the physical and the mental. Physical is rupa, the other four are mental. Uh, and, and they give rise a in a specific form to the experience of seeing. If the eye is intact but no forms come, and if there's no consciousness, means if, you're, if your mind is distracted, there will be no seeing. But, given the contact of these three things, the visual stimulus, the eye, and the mind, when they come together, if your eyes are open and there's something to see, the light is turned on, and if there's consciousness, then there will be seeing. It seems like a overly obvious thing to say, but what he's trying to say is that this, that's it, that's how seeing comes about. Seeing isn't self means 
We aren't the ones seeing That's what we normally think, right? We think, oh, I saw Well, we say it like that I saw I saw Ben, ben yesterday oh, I saw George yesterday What actually happened is the seeing happened to you Seeing is, which we learned last night, seeing is a resultant I means seeing is a result of other things it's, uh, it's a result generally of karma If you do something bad, you'll see bad things If you do something good, you'll see good things It's much, much more complicated than that But uh, it's a resultant means it, it happens to us It's not us who decide we're going to see things Seeing requires conditions, causes, it requires the confluence of many things. So what that means is our experiences are not self. Our experiences are not under our control, is a very important corollary. Which is, a, you know, it's, it's, it has consequences. If they're not under our control. And we can't say, let our, be seeing, let our seeing be thus, let our seeing not be thus Let us only see good things, for example And how much trouble we get into by trying to control seeing Trying to control hearing Smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking well, It's a really f important philosophical point uh, Is that uh, this approach to life and to experience of trying to always get what we want of trying to be in charge of what really comes down to the six senses seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking and make it all pleasant and all desirable and all good and all what i want is uh, dangerous and conducive only to stress and suffering you know, it builds up habits of aversion, habits of necess of uh, neediness, needing things to be in a certain way, not being content when things are not that way, not being able to rest with the way things are at any given moment. It's not the proper way to deal with reality. It's not the way out of suffering, the way to find happiness or peace. Happiness peace is quite simple, but it means you have to be completely objective. You have to see things as they are and uh, observe them, observe what's really happening, observe seeing as seeing. To change the way we interact with the world to the way it really is, seeing it as it is. Not being so dense and so deluded. Thinking, oh, this will make me happy It's not going to make you happy Seeing things clearly So that the things that we know Are causing us stress and suffering That we stop clinging to them Stop hurting ourselves So he talks about the six senses And then he says about the six senses, he says, so the, the, the sense itself is, is, is suffering. But the, the desire, the indulgence, inclination, and holding, based on the five, based on all these things, seeing, hearing, smelling, based on experience, that's the cause of suffering, the origin of suffering, right? So the second noble truth. Uh, the removal of the desire and lust, the abandonment of desire and lust for 
experience is the cessation of suffering simple right when you when you attain this clarity simple it's not some mystical state when you see things as they are there's no suffering that's the third noble truth He doesn't actually specifically mention the fourth noble truth, but he says at that point, too, friends, much has been done by the, that bhikkhu when they see this, and that's the path, right? He's implicit. He's implying there the fourth noble truth, that the fourth noble truth is the path to freedom from suffering. Showing, you know, in a nutshell, it's like he's taken the four noble truths and he's pulled them apart and showed you what what is inside them. Which is very common to, common to start from something like that Sariputta was very intent As was the Buddha But Sariputta in the few suttas we have is, is very intent upon including the Four Noble Truths There's a story uh, I'm pretty sure it's about Sariputta Where Sariputta taught a Brahmin once And this Brahmin was dying Or maybe not dying He died eventually But Sariputta taught him And he thought to himself Well these Brahmins, they like uh, they like to go to the Brahma realm. So I'll teach him the four Brahma Viharas: metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, the kind, loving kindness, and so on. And he taught it to him. And then the Buddha asked him, "Hey, what did you?" Then he died. And the Buddha asked Sariputta, "What did you teach him?" And Sariputta said, "I taught him the four Brahma Viharas." I thought, you know, he's probably wants to go to the Brahma realms. And the Buddha says. And there's such a it's such a weighted statement. He says that Brahman has been born in the Brahma realms. And then Sariputta got it and realized what he had done. Uh, was, I may be not telling the story exactly properly, but it's something like that. Uh, and he went to the he went to the Brahma realms. He 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 went with his mind to the God realms, and he taught him the Four Noble Truths. And the story goes that from then on. Uh, he never taught any time Sariputta taught he would never omit the Four Noble Truths all the Buddha had to do is if I remember correctly all the Buddha had to do was say he's gone to the Brahma realms like you messed up because the Brahma realms are not uh, are not going to lead to enlightenment anyway I, I don't take that story with a grain of salt because I, I have to I'd have to look into it again to remember it Perfectly, but in in brief, that's the Maha Maha Hati Padopama Sutta, the greater discourse on the simile of the elephant's footprint. So, thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night. <laughs>